Messy Realities, The Secret Life of Technology. My name is Gemma Hughes. I'm a health services researcher at Oxford University. And I, with my colleagues and friends, have put together this podcast series called Messy Realities, The Secret Life of Technology. The series describes how we took our research into assisted living technologies to the Pitt Rivers Museum in Oxford in search of some new meaning and inspiration. In this, our first episode, I talked to Professor Tricia Greenhouse and two of my colleagues from the Pitt Rivers Museum, Josie Kettle and Beth McDougall, about how our collaborative project came about. Professor Tricia Greenhouse leads a programme of research funded by the Wellcome Trust called Studies in Co-Creating Assisted Living Solutions, which we sometimes refer to as SCALS for short. Trisha and I talk about what assisted living technologies are and how, through our public engagement work with the Pitt Rivers Museum, we came to appreciate some of the symbolic and cultural properties of everyday technologies. Trish, you are Professor of Primary Care Health Sciences and you co-direct with Sara Shaw, the Interdisciplinary Research into Health Sciences Group at the Nuffield Department of Primary Care Health Sciences. You're also a Fellow at Green Templeton College at Oxford University. How did you come to be talking about assisted living technologies in the Pitt Rivers Museum? I'm a medical doctor and I'm a social scientist and for about the last 20 years I've been studying technologies in a healthcare context. And by technologies I mean tools, gadgets, devices, but also hardware and software, computers and more recently uh, the more advanced computing uh, functions like robotics and artificial intelligence. So against that background, over the last few years, I've become more and more interested in technologies that are installed in people's homes to help them live with long-term illness. The, the phrase assisted living technology covers quite a broad range of different kinds of technologies, would you say? There are two main types of assisted living technologies. One is more social care oriented uh, around things like safety and confidence and keeping people in touch if they're isolated and lonely or biomedically oriented technologies for uh, taking readings of things like blood pressure or blood oxygen level and sending those readings to usually a hospital based centre where a specialist can have a look at them and monitor them. So would you say there are um, technologies that help, as you say, monitor people's medical conditions on one hand, on the other hand, there are technologies that are more around helping people go around their daily lives? Is that a useful distinction to make, do you think? Yes, I think so. And I think it's also important to note that uh, many of these technologies uh, are also useful for the relatives of older people living at home, often on their own. I, I've got elderly relatives myself, and I feel reassured by the fact that at least one of them has got a pendant alarm, and so if they got into difficulties, they could press the button. And, and, and it's really for my reassurance as much as theirs. So that, that's really interesting in thinking about not just the individual who uses the technology, but their support network, their family, their social network, I guess. Yes, I think that's true. And one of the things that we've been looking at when we've been studying assisted living technologies uh, with a grant funded by the Wellcome Trust is the whole network around uh, the individual and the technology who bought it or who, uh, whose idea was it uh, and whose needs does it serve and equally whose needs doesn't it serve. 
So tell us a bit about some of the methods that you've been using to research how people use technologies in their everyday lives. Yes, we've been using something called naturalistic methods, which means studying things in their real world, real life context. And it's been a great privilege to visit people in their own homes and to talk to them about how they actually use technologies or indeed why they don't use them. Uh, we visit people. We may stay a couple of hours if we're if we're uh, allowed to do that, if the person's as comfortable with us there. And in fact, if they're technologies that... Uh, the person wears on their person, we can go out for a walk with them and see what happens when when they take it out out of doors. So it's been a very interesting and and, and great fun project to do, really. We've met a lot of very interesting people. We've seen them in very interesting and unique situations. And we've learned how people interpret technologies and how they make practical use of them in all sorts of different situations. So that kind of research generates what we call qualitative data, texts, pictures, quotes, um, and accounts written by researchers of what it was like to be there when these technologies were used. Uh, And that's a very different kind of research from, uh, for example, a randomised controlled trial where we're, you know, randomising people to be in one group or another. We weren't doing that kind of research, although that that kind of research can be useful in its own context. When you were talking there about going out for a walk with people, it reminded me of one of the um, pieces of work led by our colleague Jo, who, who did a lovely piece of work around wandering and um, fa- finding what is meaningful to people in their daily lives. Yes, that was a study of um, GPS tracking technologies in people with cognitive impairment, either dementia or mild memory loss. And the idea is that uh, people like to go out of the house, they like to go for a walk, walk the dog, go to the pub, that kind of thing. But of course, if you've got a bit of memory loss, you might forget your way home. And so various companies have developed things that look a bit like a wristwatch and you put them on. And if you can't remember your way home and you you don't arrive home when you're expected, then your family or perhaps the services, the official services can uh, activate a tracker and find out where you are and come and get you and bring you home safely. So it was a great idea. And for a very small proportion of people, it worked really well. But in, in many cases, something didn't quite fit between the technology and the way the person was living their lives and also their own capabilities. So, for example, we had one person who just kept taking this wristwatch thing off and leaving it in the pub or or, or on a park bench. And, of course, the very condition for which the technology had been designed was also the condition that made him forget why it was important not to remove the device. So I think, you know, this is an example of... Something that technology designers need to continue to address those challenges. Um, it's not their fault, but, but of course, illness and uh, disability affect people in different and unique ways. And that's one of the great challenges of the Messy Realities project. One of the methods, I guess, has been to try and understand how people experience the world from their perspective, an ethnographic approach, if you like. It's an interesting word, ethnography, because 
you usually think of ethnography, if you know the word at all, as, as something that anthropologists do when they sort of, you know, go off to far off lands, put on their pith helmet and, and, and study, you know, uh, tribes and, and cultures that are very different from our own. But ethnographic methods can also be used in, in uh, more familiar situations. And in fact, anthropologists sometimes call this making the familiar strange. Probably all of us have got a, a, an elderly relative or a friend or neighbour who's struggling to live independently. So that's a very familiar situation. But with ethnographic methods, we can really unpack the detail of what's going on, people's interpretations, people's practices and behaviours. And we can get a lot of insights into how to improve technologies and the way they are introduced into the home. When you were talking there about the familiar strain, it made me think about we've got the familiar environment of our own homes or our loved ones' homes, but then also the strangeness of of becoming unwell or becoming disabled. And thinking about some of the um, the scholars that have written about that, I was thinking about Susan Sontag when you were you were talking then. Yes, and I think it's the whole idea of strangeness is is a concept that anthropologists use quite a lot, and of course. Bringing a piece of medical equipment into the home is a very strange thing. And time and again in, in this research, we, we would listen to people who would say, well, I don't really want that thing in my living room. And they would create perhaps a little space in a corner of a bedroom, perhaps a spare bedroom or something like that, where whatever device it was uh, could sit. But it still didn't feel quite right when you've spent, you know, 10, 20 years getting your living room just right with the cushions and the little tables and pictures of, of things that are important to you. And then someone says, could you please keep this blood pressure machine in the corner? Um, there is a strangeness to that. Uh, and I think we need to remember that the home is not just a sort of box that you live in. It's also something that symbolises what's important to you and the people who are important to you. And so bringing technologies into that home, especially technologies that symbolise illness and dependency and medicalisation, uh, that, that, that is in itself quite a, a troubling thing for some people. That gives us a great um, way into talking about uh, the work we've been doing in the Pitt Rivers Museum, thinking about objects that may be strange or bringing objects into strange situations. What did you first think when we talked about doing some public engagement on this research at the Pitt Rivers Museum? Well, the Pitt Rivers Museum is my favourite museum in Oxford, without any doubt. Uh, I've been there many times and uh, one of the things I love about it is, is the way they bring together uh, different technologies or gadgets or, or, or things, objects, uh, with a similar purpose, but from different countries, different uh, periods of time in history. And you can look and compare. And I suppose one of the uh, earliest uh, examples of that that we discovered was different pillboxes, different ways people stored their medicines over the years. And whereas the pillboxes that some of the older people in our study uh, were using were, were rather dull plastic things, not, not very attractive, we discovered that in other societies in the past, pillboxes were very beautiful. They were carved, they were made out of perhaps precious wood or some, something that, that was, very, was very special. And it made me realise that there are some design challenges that we maybe have forgotten about. If, if we want someone to 
organize their medication in a way that is meaningful to them, perhaps we can learn a bit from ancient societies uh, who uh, developed pill boxes that were beautiful and, and which could, could sit very comfortably, for example, in the living room or, or a place where someone lived. One of the things that I really enjoyed about this project and one of the um, methods that we used was to deliberately put diverse objects or technologies together. Um, And we did draw on so many interesting and different things. For example, at one point we got talking about your bike, your push bike, your bicycle, (laughs) and about a Zimbabwean bush pump. Can you tell me a little bit about how these two seemingly unconnected objects came together in our discussions and how it's relevant to your research on assisted living technologies? Yeah, sure. One of the big themes in our data when we interviewed and spent time with people who were using technologies in the home was emotion. People felt very strongly. They either loved technologies or they hated them. And That's something which is often airbrushed out of scientific research, and yet it's absolutely crucial. And uh, I suppose my bicycle was was a a way... I love my bicycle, and the reason why I love my bicycle is it's made by uh, an organisation called Elephant Bike. It's a charity, and they make two bikes. For every every bike they sell, they make another one, which is identical. And uh, they, they recondition old bikes, actually. And so when you get your bike, you've also paid for this second bike to be sent off to a poor African country where somebody will be given it and they will be able to start a business or uh, use it as a form of transport. And so my bike, when I ride it, symbolises not just the fact that I can get around in this in this sort of old, slow bicycle, but also that someone in Africa is um, doing the same thing on an identical bike. So, so that gives me a good feeling. So that brings me to the Zimbabwean bush pump, which is a very simple pump. It's made of wood and bolts and bits of metal. And it was introduced right across Zimbabwe and different people in different villages adapted it slightly to the needs of the local village. Uh, And one of the things about Zimbabwean bush pumps is that they are uh, adaptable, they're flexible, different groups can use them slightly differently. It doesn't matter if one or two of the bolts are missing. And these pumps are installed in the village to give them clean water and children dance around them because they love them so much. And so so there's wonderful things there. But the really interesting thing about the bush pump is that it was the subject of an academic paper by two Dutch philosophers, Delight and Moll, two women philosophers who in the first paragraph of the scientific paper said, we absolutely love this this bush pump. And now we're going to spend the whole academic paper analysing why we love it so much. And it was a beautiful illustration of how emotion towards a technology can actually uh, enlighten you and make you realise what the positive features of that technology are. And I guess with the technologies that we've been studying... I love some of those technologies and I hate some of them as well. And it's when you start asking yourself, why do I feel towards that technology in this way, that you then get data that allows you to improve that technology. We wrote a blog about this. Um, We'll we'll put the link up as well. Um, In the blog, you talk about how um, Delight and Mole are post-actor network theorists. So... 
actor network, what is that and how is that relevant? Yes, let me talk about actor network theory. Uh, in some ways, it's quite an obscure theory, but in other ways, it's, it's, it's very simple and straightforward. The actors in actor network theory are either people or technologies. And the idea is that we're all connected in a network. So if we look at what you and I are doing at the moment, you and I are sitting having a conversation and right in the middle between us is a recording device. And that recording device will be connected up to a computer and the podcast will be made. And then there'll be other people listening to that on other technologies. So we can already imagine a network of people and technologies that are interacting in complex ways and actually in ways that you and I can't predict. We're not really sure what's going to happen with this podcast. Now, that is a very important way of conceptualising technologies. They, they're not isolated. They're, they're linked to other technologies and they're linked to people. And uh, Bruno Latour, who was one of the architects of actor network theory, encouraged us to think about technologies as parts of a network. Now, Delight and Mole are post-actor network theorists, and I don't think we need to get into the detail of what that means, but what they're saying is they, they accept and uphold many aspects of the original actor network theory, but they'd like to take it forward in ways that uh, rejects some of the earlier assumptions but they are still saying very strongly, let's think about technologies as part of a wider socio-technical system. And when we do that, first of all, it becomes much more interesting because we don't, we have to think about, you know, who else and what other things are in that network and what's happening to the network as a whole rather than just uh, with this particular technology. So the, the pendant alarm that you mentioned earlier, which is a very kind of everyday technology, particularly for older people, is a great example, I guess, of a piece of technology that is very much about a social network, but is also one that has personal and emotional meaning attached to it for people. Um, people might, as you say, love them or hate them. Um, some people find their pendant alarms really reassuring. Other people refuse to wear them. So that's an example, really, of a piece of technology that, that can show us some of these different meanings, these layers of meanings, and the social and technological connections between people. Yes, I think that's right. And in the GPS tracking device example, that there was another example of that in that the people who managed to use the GPS tracker successfully, and really there were only a handful of them, were often people who had rather special families, families who were very engaged with the individual, but also enthusiastically um, engaged with the technology, learned how to use it, learned its kind of idiosyncrasies, and were able to adapt their own patterns of living to accommodate this individual with this new technology. The people who were less successful using uh, the GPS tracking technology either had very few family members at all, or their family members were not engaged in pulling together to help to make that technology work for the individual. So I think actor network theory is a very good way, a good lens for looking at 
uh, how people do or don't manage to make technologies work uh, in the home and family context. One of the brilliant things about doing the work at the Pitt Rivers Museum was this um, was the opportunity to bring objects together that initially didn't necessarily seem to have a connection. Um, but by exploring those connect those connections or disconnections, we came up with some new ideas. So the pendant alarm was an object that we put together with um, an amulet. And we started to think differently as a result of putting those objects together about what it means for technology to work. And we, we had lots of discussions about how does an amulet work? Um, what, if anything, new came out of being in the museum and talking to people in the museum for you? The amulet example is, is just wonderful uh, because we found in the museum collection uh, several of these objects that had been designed and developed for people to put around their necks and hang around their necks in order to make them safe. And they were very beautiful, they were very elegant, they were clearly pieces of decorative jewellery, but also within the context of that culture, there was some kind of mythical connection with either spirits or a deity or some protective force. Now, the physical similarities between those amulets and the modern pendant alarms were very striking, except that the modern pendant alarms were not nearly as attractive. But it made me think, to what extent is the pendant alarm a symbolic object for the individual rather than simply a technology that, quote, works, unquote. Because actually, the pendant alarm very often doesn't work. It doesn't work when you're having an epileptic fit. It doesn't work when you've left it in the bedroom, but you've fallen over in the shower. It doesn't work if there's a technical failure. Uh, we had one lady who uh, was actually burgled and, and the burglar used the pendant alarm to tie her up with and it didn't work then. So... There are many times it doesn't work, but on the other hand, there is something symbolic about the individual wearing this alarm, uh, making them think that it's it's going to protect them and, and the relatives think it's going to protect them. And that's not something we studied before we looked at the amulets. We assumed that it was all about the technical aspects, whereas in point of fact, it, it, was, it was about the technical connections plus the idea that this object also had symbolic properties of protecting against risk and danger. Some of our colleagues were perhaps a little bit perplexed as to why we were going into the Pit Rivers and couldn't immediately see the connections between our research and, and the museum. Did you have any doubts at all about whether or not we might pull this piece of work off? I wasn't too worried that some of our uh, colleagues were couldn't understand what we were doing because I think what we're doing is relatively radical for a biomedical group but if you go and talk to anthropologists if you talk to designers if you talk to artists then this is absolutely mainstream now I would say to the skeptics um, you know the people who who've more involved in doing randomised controlled trials or measuring the technical properties of technologies, I would say, look, I, I very much respect your work, but can you think of a relative of yours 
who didn't use a technology that you thought they should have used. For example, when you got your gran a mobile phone or when you encouraged someone to use a pendulum and they said, well, I'm not being seen with one. Uh, you will probably find that the resistance that that they showed towards the technology was emotional and was socio-culturally driven. So that they, uh, maybe I'm wrong, but certainly in, in my personal experience, when my relatives have said, look, I'm not using whatever it is technology, it has been because of the symbolic properties of that technology as much as the technical properties. So in a nutshell, there's more to technologies than meets the eye. Uh, Yes, very much so. And I think the way we get to that is by moving away from a narrowly biomedical deterministic view of technologies and start to look at technologies as cultural objects which have a place in our lives or if they don't have a place in our lives, that is often for cultural reasons. Finally, thinking about some of the themes that we discussed at Pitt Rivers, we looked at the themes of personalisation, meaningful activity, progression. What would you say to people, maybe patients or professionals or even policymakers, who turn to assisted living technologies as solutions for health and social care needs? Well, I'm not anti-technology. I'm very keen on technology and I know that my own elderly relatives' lives have been improved and and in one case transformed by uh, assisted living technologies. So I think we can make these technologies work, but they are not a panacea. Uh, I would say to particularly to the policymakers who often have a very um, ambitious goal of scaling up a particular technology so that everybody's using it. I would say that our research shows very emphatically that one size does not fit all because different individuals, different families, different cultural groups uh, have different perspectives on technologies. And we need to make sure that technologies are sufficiently adaptable so that people can use them in different ways, interpret them in different ways, apply them in different contexts, and those contexts have to be meaningful for those individuals in the context of their own lives. So Josie, we came to the Pitt Rivers Museum to engage with the public about our research. Can you tell us a little bit about Pitt Rivers? The Pitt Rivers is understood through many different lenses um, and the most useful one from this project's perspective is seeing the museum as a space of comparative technology. So everything in the collection is a piece of technology. The museum itself is a technology through which you can see and access um, uh, different times different times in history, different cultural beliefs. Uh, so it's a really relevant space in which to be kind of interrogating the idea of what technology is and what it can be and what it means for different people. So General Pitt Rivers, whose founding collection started off this museum, was very interested in showing um, progression over time. So he stipulated that the the exhibitions here showed objects um, in what we call a typological display. So many museums around the world uh, group their objects geographically or uh, chronologically. So you're going to the British Museum and you'll see... um, objects grouped around um, Australasia or the Pacific, whereas in the Pit Rivers you will come in and you'll see objects from all different time periods and all different um, geographies in one case. 
which is really useful, um, but it also can be quite disorientating for visitors. So one of the things that we've done through this project is to um, go into delve into those cases and really explore object groupings from our own perspectives, um, trying to remove them from the typology that Pitt Rivers created, which was one of progression from primitive, as he saw it, to um, white British society, and really deconstruct that and think about different ways of attributing value to objects, technologies. So what you find in the Pitt Rivers is you might have a, a human problem, like how to create light, and then a collection of objects which people from different places and times have used to solve that problem. Yeah, absolutely. So the, the museum has been arranged by type of um, problem-solving device. So everything in the museum is a human response to a shared human problem. So as you say, Gemma, um, the, the need to light your home or the need to um, create fire to feed your cook food and feed your family. So the common thread throughout the museum is um, problem solving through technology and innovation. So Messy Realities was our project to try and understand better our research into how people are currently using technologies to solve particular health and, and care needs within the context of the museum. Um, tell us a bit more about your role, Josie, at the museum. What do you do here? So um, I have a, I think, a really interesting role at the museum. I really enjoy it. So I'm, um, my role straddles the public engagement team and also the research team. So I get to work with really interesting researchers, um, particularly based within Oxford University, but also um, with different public groups, so public stakeholders, which might be older people living with dementia. Um, it might be the Rwandan community, or it might be um, Indigenous artists living um, living abroad. So the main focus of my work is using with using the collections as a catalyst to bring different people together. So whether it's researchers coming together over a particular problem with different community members and really creating um, reshaping the museum as a space for conversation. So in the Messy Realities podcast series, um, we're going to look at some of the objects from the museum collections with some of our objects from our research and see what we might um, learn and be inspired um, by. Um, you mentioned that some of the legacy of Pitt Rivers is problematic. Can you say a little bit about some of the projects that you've been involved with that try to perhaps redress some of those problemac problematic notions of progression from a very um, singular perspective? Yeah, so a real driver of the museum's current work is the idea of redress and, and what practically that can mean for a museum as complicated um, and, and entrenched in colonial legacies as the Pitt Rivers. So I've been lucky enough in the last few years to work on some really interesting um, and quite challenging projects to reset the balance of power really in the museum space. Um, traditionally, the curatorial approach in most museums has been one of um, uh, one of singular perspectives, so uh, a word which we often use in the museum now is multivocality, and what we mean by that is quite simply bringing in different voices into the space and creating um, a platform from which they can different people can speak rather than just a single curator. So uh, the messy realities are definitely formed part of that because we've been able to bring in a really diverse mix of people and bring them together to create a new quite kind of community and that involves researchers, it involves older people living with dementia, people who have suffered um, brain injury and uh, valuing their voices as much as that of the curator in the space. Um, other projects that I've worked on more recently include um, 
uh, exhibitions with the Rwandan community locally around the 1994 genocide against the Tutsi. Um, I'm working on a project at the moment um, called Beyond the Binary, which is working with um, particularly LGBTIAQ plus stakeholders to reframe the museum um, as a queer space. So really quite a diverse range mm. of, of projects to really break down hopefully the the power imbalances of the past and think about how we can make the space more reflective of um, different histories and realities. So that idea of multi-vocality or multiple voices is quite important to your work currently um, and it's something I think we come back to in relation to our research project as well and yeah. later on in the in the podcast series. Um, so we came to the Pitt Rivers and we had a fantastic time engaging with the public. Um, Beth, you were really absolutely crucial to that work in engaging with some of our community members um, in Messy Realities, where we brought together technologies that we're researching that are everyday technologies that help people with different health needs, um, and also some very cutting edge new technologies. And you helped us put those together with some of the um, museum collections. Um, tell us a bit more about your role here, what you do, um, and how you go about your role. So I would say that um, Josie and I are sort of two parts of the same coin, that we work really closely together um, in bringing researchers and community members together. I think um, what I do, I am the Families and Communities Officer for the Pitt Rivers, is think of ways in which not only can um, we uh, deliver activity in the museum, but actually think about how community partners um, of all ages, so from three to I think the older person I've worked with is 96, um, to uh, engage and to be part of the discussion instead of it being um, didactic and um, this museum uh, presents that single narrative that Josie's been talking about. Actually, how do we make sure people are um, not only included but actually empowered um, in sharing their lived experience of technologies that they see in this museum but also um, whatever's happening in their everyday lives. The Pitt Rivers Museum is an amazing place to be. Um, how would you describe the museum to somebody that maybe has never been here? So actually on my first day here, um, I would say that the first thing that came to mind was I'm a bit overstimulated and slightly overwhelmed. We put many objects very closely and densely packed together so that you can, um, as Josie said, look at the technologies from around the world and see that we have all um, had shared problems. Um, Gemma alluded to thinking about light. Um, Josie said about fire making. Uh, everyone around the world um, finds themselves in the dark sometimes. Um, and so if you can see all of our light making materials in our objects together, then you start to draw draw together that kind of shared humanity. So we um, some people call us a museum of a museum. Um, I feel like we use that a lot, but it is true. We are um, a Victorian space. Um, we have uh, things that guide our design principles. Um, we are listed, so things like our cases and our cabinet spaces, which are these um, black kind of densely filled cases, are part of the very fabric and nature of this building. Without those, the same stories wouldn't be able to be told. Um, it causes us issues, as we've also talked about with the decolonisation and thinking about um, the way we might have framed people in the past. Um, but it also gives us really great opportunities to uh, deconstruct those as well. So we're over um, three floors um, and we go from everything from weapons and armour to textiles and ceramics. One of the things I love about Pit Rivers and 
what I've loved about the work we've done is that we've gone from talking about sometimes quite mundane objects and looking at mundane objects to some really profound human questions. And I think it's the kind of museum that inspires you to do that because it has got so many things here, um, but it covers so much in terms of human endeavour. So we've, we've been really lucky to be able to come to the museum and talk about our shared interests in health and wellbeing and technologies and some of the problems and concerns we've got and some of the constraints we share when we try and um, introduce technologies to help people. Um, and we found lots of parallels and lots of connections to talk about. Um, what we've So we've had this kind of... Um, triad really there's been our research as as people interested in assisted living technology and different interpretations of health and well-being we've got the museum's concerns um, including concerns around how to enhance um, health and well-being and then we've had our community members who are obviously all diverse and don't necessarily share the same views but we've come together in in a shared space um, to talk about messy realities. Now, Beth, you came up with the title Messy Realities, The Secret Life of Technology because when I came to you and said we want to do some public engagement about our research, I wasn't able to come up with a very snappy title and you made it, you wanted to make a flyer, you wanted to advertise the programme to people and get them to come in and talk to us. Tell, can you tell me how you came up with the title of Messy Realities and what that, um, where that came from and what that means. I think it became Messy Realities because every time we all talk to each other, one of us would use the word messy and somebody else would say realities. Um, and so it sort of stuck in my mind that not only is it messy reality of having a technology in your life that um, you haven't necessarily chosen to have there, but also some of the co-production methods that we chose to use together um, are by their very nature quite messy. You never know exactly where you're going to go. There is not a linear A to B and a solution at the end that it's always uh, iterating and changing and evolving. And by that nature, it's very messy. So I think messy realities came from that. The secret life of technology is um, one day we were talking about the idea of putting technologies into the shed that you discard. And I just get a picture in my head every time I think of it, of this little wooden shed at the bottom of the garden full of uh, crutches or walking frames or um, things that have been thrown in there, but also like this space of tinkering and um, sort of fiddling about with technologies and making them um, work better for ourselves, that kind of Heath Robinson approach. And I think sometimes... um, when I was a kid, I used to watch a programme called The Shoe People, uh, which probably dates me quite badly, but The Shoe People and Poddington Peas, and the idea that those um, inanimate objects and uh, foods from the garden would suddenly come to life and be animate and have um, very detailed conversations and very uh, detailed social lives. And so, to me, what was happening in the shed? Were those um, objects coming to life? What would they be discussing if they had the opportunity to talk about themselves? Would they be thinking about their progression would they be seeing themselves as um, ugly and useless would they be thinking if only I had um, you know a little bit of yarn bombing on my walking frame or that kind of thing so it's um, that kind of animation of the the objects and that bringing to life that's why we came to the museum was to try and get new perspectives on uh, the technologies we're interested in researching, but also some new ideas about what those technologies mean for people. 
we do talk um, in one of our other podcast episodes about how people relate to technologies and the feelings that people have, whether or not they might love or hate their technologies. And we also explore this idea of um, messy realities and the, the, um, the actual experience of using technologies, which can be messy compared to some of the modernist discourses about what technologies are expected to do for us. Um, so we do cover some of those topics um, elsewhere in the series. We also talk about some of the methods we use to engage with the public um, because that's something that we really turn to you um, as someone with expertise in engaging with the public that we as researchers don't necessarily have. So we've got a, a podcast episode where we go through some of the, the methods we use um, and we explain some of the things that work really well and we also touch on some of the things that were a bit less um, successful. Um, we've also had, uh, we also have a, um, an episode where we go behind the scenes at the museum um, and we talk to some of the um, conservators here who spend their days behind the scenes really, um, but doing really crucial work to conserve, preserve, maintain the artefacts in the museum and we hear some really interesting different perspectives on the museum from them. Other episodes uh, include conversations with some of the community members that you brought into the museum, Beth. Um, we hear from Phil and Isla um, some of the challenges that they face in day-to-day -day life in living with different um, health conditions and how they use technologies to assist them. And we have some really interesting conversations with them. We have another episode where we uh, talk to George Leeson and our friends Jean and Sheila about some of the hopes and fears for technology and we, we talk about some really cutting-edge technology and look at robotics and some uh, surprising and unusual applications of robotics with our colleagues there. So we've really enjoyed doing this project. Um, it's been fantastic working with Josie and Beth in particular. Um, it's been really, really stimulating but also really fun. Um, what's it been like for you, Josie, to be involved in this project? The project has allowed us to really interrogate the collections from different angles um, alongside incredible researchers and really um, eloquent and astute members of the public. It's allowed us to bring quite unexpected groupings of people into the museum as well as creating unexpected groupings of material. So it's allowed us to reanimate the collections really um, in a really exciting new way um, and it's also driven the museum to develop a, a new fundraising stream around um, that will allow us to continue this work working with researchers doing cutting-edge work on, on health and well-being and technology and also to continue developing our relationships with community stakeholders so it's it's really transformed our practice and given us a new area of focus that we hope to continue exploring with new researchers and new community members. And I would say that um, personally it's being an opportunity to share um, the life that goes on outside of the museum um, in a kind of open and safe environment, not only for uh, all, of, uh, all contributors really. Like I found that I've been able to talk about things in my personal life that I didn't think I'd have an opportunity to share um, that has really helped uh, kind of give me comfort in what I have experienced but also um, to feel that I have allies sitting around the table that have been through some of the similar issues. Um, I talk about uh, my granddad's dementia at points during the podcast and it was really lovely for me to, to feel that there were other people who had had that kind of uh, similar level of engagement with something that they never thought they would have to face. 
So we've been so lucky to be able to take part in this project, to have these fantastic conversations about health, about technologies. Um, we've done that in the museum setting, and we've been able to draw on the amazing resources and assets we've got here, and I, I mean the people as well, and the skills as well as the, the um, wonderful collections. Um, so we wanted to share some of those fascinating conversations um, and to share some of the stories um, with, with a wider range of people. So you can listen to the rest of the podcast series to hear uh, more about the conversations we had and to find out more about how we carried out this project.